to that. You hath he quickened, he's made alive in trespasses and sins. Now, wherein in times past, ye walked according to the course of this word. Pay close attention to this second verse because from it, we're extracting our title, part of our title or subtext today and subtitle, and then also one of the main emphasis, points of emphasis a little bit later in the message. Wherein in times past, ye walked according to the course of this world. Now, I know you're unfamiliar with this King James English, but the word you, or excuse me, ye here is a in plural. So he's talking not just to an individual, but he's talking to all those that profess faith in Christ. In times past, ye walked according to what? The course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. It's the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. I want you to remember that verse there. Now, Paul here shifts and he says, but among whom also we. This is why there's no place of hypocrisy in the body of Christ. We must condemn it because we had our conversation or our lifestyle in times past in what? This is how we used to live, in the lust of our flesh. Is that right? Fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, he has quickened us together with Christ. He's made us alive together with Christ. For by grace ye are saved. And he hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come, Paul says, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. So I want to just stop right there, and I'm not going to develop the entire context of Ephesians 2 here in just a few moments. My emphasis will be on the second and the third verse. But I do have a title for us today because I think it will help us. And the, I have a title and a subtitle, and the title is, Who Has the Word of God? I want you to just think about that for a moment. Who has the Word of God? And then the subtitle would say, It is a demonic spirit. Just remember that. It is a demonic spirit. So we're going to, you say, Pastor, those things don't even seem like they mix. Well, I think they will. If you'll just allow a little bit of time and we'll listen carefully for the Holy Spirit to speak to us today. Lord, I love you and I'm honored to be with people that their hearts are ready. They have been prepared beforehand, challenged by the ministry of the Word of God over the last month. Father, and now a privileged opportunity that I have to be a sower of the Word of God. I pray as I have prayed privately, I'll pray it publicly, Father. Make me as the oracles of God. I pray, Father, let my words today, God, be spoken, Father, with great conviction. And may it write on the fleshly tablet of the heart. Thank you for your presence today. And if I can ask anything at all today, God, let there be a, a, a holy anointing upon the word of God. It's in Jesus' name. And all God's children said, amen. And you can be seated. Let me take just a moment because it's going to seem like I'm going to take you one direction, then I'm going to shift you another direction only to bring you back to a third direction. But in this passage here, it's the second verse, that for the latter several weeks I have been musing this in my heart and in my spirit as I have meditated. In the context born in my own heart is here's the reality, church family, and I just want to just share this with you as a point of remembrance very quickly. There are only two families. There are only two people groups. You're either saved 
and you're a part of the body of Christ, and you are of the family of God. Are you a child of disobedience? You are of your father, the devil, and of his works you will do. And you say, Pastor, man, that is, you come home with just a, a, a frank, just, uh, just right out of the gates. That's the reality. That's what the scriptures teach us is that if we're in Christ, we've been translated out of the kingdom of darkness. And we have been brought into his marvelous light. This passage of Scripture, Paul is saying, he's saying that the children of this world, and notice what he calls them, the children of disobedience. He said the children of this world, children of disobedience, their life and lifestyle is driven, if you put the third verse in context with it, by a fleshly appetite, a carnal mind, their carnal nature. They are children of wrath. That means that there is going to come a day of the righteous indignation of God. I know in the culture in which we live in today that many churches have omitted the doctrine of the wrath of God. But let me tell you today, in doing so, we are, we are perverting the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came not to give you your best life now. God, he came and he died on a cross, not so you'd have a better job or a nice home. Those are all good things, and I'm for all that, and I know God is as well. But ultimately, at the end of the day, he came and he bled and he died. On a cross called Calvary so that you and I would be welcomed into God's eternal kingdom. That's the gospel wherein we preach. And Paul said in this passage here, we were children of wrath, but now we're not. But that means that there are still those that are children of wrath. And they're walking after the course of this world, the order of this world. A designed schematic, if you will, that the enemy has a stronghold in and moves openly in the lives of men and women. In this passage, Paul said they, uh, that they are walking according to the prince of the power of the of the air. Who is that? That would be what we would call the devil, Satan, Lucifer, the fallen angel cast out of heaven with an innumerable host of angels who are bound under chains of darkness, whose entire purpose is to steal, kill, and to destroy. Some say the enemy is the enemy of God. He is not. There are no enemies of God. It is your enemy, your adversary, the devil. There cannot be an enemy of God because then that would make the enemy equitable with God. And there is but one God who sits on the throne of his glory and no Nobody can be equated, even a demon, devil, or an angel to God. Come on, somebody. But your adversary, hidden in the minds of men and in the patterns of life and lifestyle and choices, the adversary seeks to fulfill his, his hatred against God by harming the people of God. Now, we could go on further than this, but just tuck that away by saying it is a devil. It's a demon. They're under the control of a demonic spirit. That's what that passage says. There is a spirit that now works in the children of disobedience. So now I want you to just kind of tuck that away. Don't forget about it. We're going to pull it back up here in a few moments. One of the books that I read on my uh, sabbatical, that's one of the books that I chose to read, was a book about some of the history uh, that correlated with the children of Israel. It was a timeline. 
And one of the books, the intent was, was to show us things that were happening in the other nations that were kind of connected to the children of Israel. Oftentimes, we find our and trace our history only through the children of Israel. But this particular book was to take us into what it was like in the uh, Syrian world or Mesopotamia or even the the Grecian world or the Roman world. And and one of which was, I want to share with you an emperor who's actually mentioned in Scripture. His name is Tiberius. Now, Tiberius inherited, took the throne uh, upon the death of Caesar Augustus, and he reigned in A.D. 14 to A.D. 37 as the emperor of Rome, and the Roman Empire was at one of its largest places at this particular time. Now, Tiberius had been a successful general in the Roman army, but as a ruler, Pliny the Elder, the historian, records that Tiberius was well, here's what his own words, Pliny the Elder says, he was the gloomiest of all men. And, the, and then, the, let me give you an example of say, who was Tiberius? You remember in that passage where Jesus was asked about whether or not he should pay tribute to Caesar. Remember that? And he said, bring me a coin, or King James might say a denarius. And he, and he raised up a denarius, which was a, a, a Roman coin. And he said, whose inscription is this? And it had the picture and an image of an emperor. It was Emperor Tiberius. On the coin, and that was the point that Jesus made. He said, Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar, and render unto God the things that are God's. And so, Tiberius also, listen just real quickly, um, as relating to sensuality, history references his dark sensual appetite. So, when he would leave, uh, where he would govern in Rome, he had a certain palace somewhere that he would, that he would kind of slip off to. The King David of, or not the King David, but uh, Camp David of, of that generation. A place where he could get alone. But it was a place of sensuality and, and perversion and distortion. And history records that in order to arouse his sexual appetite, that they would bring people groups, men and women, men with men, women with women, men with women, in front of him to perform lewd sexual acts. It was the pornography of his day. So that it would create an arousal within him. And then history also records that in order to satisfy his perverted and distorted uh, sexual appetite, he also used children. Now this is Tiberius Caesar, the man whose inscription was on the coin that Jesus held up to make his point. Herod Antipas, in courting the favor of Tiberius, named a town on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee in Tiberius' honor. And so the, no, just real quickly for a little moment, because I want to take you into a few men that I think we need to talk about briefly, because you've got to see them in their historical context. Well, first, we have Tiberius. He's the gloomiest of all men, and he is the Roman emperor. Now, at that particular time, Herod the Great. Does anybody remember Herod the Great? Well, he's called the Great, not because he was a great man, but it was because he was a great builder. And he built a lot of edifices in, the, in, in, in Israel during that time period. He's the one that had the slaughter of the innocents at the birth of Jesus. But upon his death, Rome did not consider his sons to be worthy of the title of king. So they broke down his kingdom into regions. And they divided it amongst three of his sons. And they're called tetrarchs. And a tetrarch is nothing more than a prince. Or it's almost equivalent to a governor. Scripture records just very briefly about them. Herod Antipas is of Galilee. And he's known in Scripture 
scripture for divorcing his wife and marrying his brother Philip's wife, Herodias. Then we also have, not, we have Herod Antipas, but we also have Philip. He's the tetriarch of this part right here, a region called Itcherea and Trachonitis, and that's northeast of Galilee. So Herod Antipas is on the western shores of Galilee, and, and, and Herod Philip, or Philip, is on the northeast side of Galilee. And their brother Licinius, though history doesn't record much about him, is the tetriarch of Abilene. It's a region near Damascus of Syria, and so that would be in uh, Israel, north of Israel. So think about those three for a moment. So let's put this together. First, we've got Tiberius, the gloomiest of all men. And then we've got the three sons of Herod, whose uh, wicked King Herod was so hated amongst the Jews. Did you know that this is, this is wicked King Herod? It was his three sons that are the tetrarchs. But wicked King Herod was so hated by the Jews, on the day of his death, he ordered the slaughter of 25 innocent Jewish men so that his death might be commemorated in Jewish history. So let's go a little bit farther. Pontius Pilate is the governor of Judea. He's the procurator. You and I are more familiar with Pontius Pilate. He's the military leader over that region, and he is responsible for maintaining control. How many of you know that was a hostile time? I'm talking about A.D. 29. There was a lot of civic unrest, a lot of hostility, and they had to oftentimes uh, suppress the hostility with an iron fist. Pontius Pilate, historians record him as heavy-handed in his taxation. He also repeatedly caused near insurrection in the city of Jerusalem because of his insensitivity to Jewish customs. And it was said that Pontius Pilate took money from the temple, stole money from the temple in order to build an aqueduct. And when the Jews found out about it, he knew that there would be uprising, so he staged certain of his soldiers uh, undercover so that when the Jews arrived to complain, out of the shadows came his soldiers, and they beat and they killed many of the people that came to complain about Pontius Pilate stealing the money. So let's go a little bit farther, So and let's see if we can put this together. Again, we have Tiberius. He's a dark, gloomy figure with a perverse and a distorted sensuality. He's the emperor of Rome. Now we've got three spoiled princes who are erratic and erotic in behavior, and they're leading the provinces. And we have a, hand, a heavy-handed taxi taxing governor who almost caused insurrection multiple times, creating a lot of volatility in the region of Judea. And so that's, the, that's what's going on in the civil government. Let me mention to you what's going on at this particular time in history with what we call the temple and with the priesthood. The scripture tells us at this time there were two high priests when actually there were actually one, but one just carried the title of high priest, but he didn't serve in that function. It's called Annas and Caiaphas. Annas and Caiaphas. Annas is the father-in-law to Caiaphas, and Caiaphas is the high priest. Annas had been removed from office in A.D. 15, and Caiaphas is now serving in that office. Caiaphas is not of the lineage of Aaron. So when you and I think about the priesthood, we think about a command in the Word of God of an Aaronic priesthood. But the priesthood had been sold out about a hundred years earlier to the highest bidder. And in this particular context, the Caiaphas had been placed by Rome. So he's in collaboration with Rome. And so the high priest at this particular time is a Sadducee within the context of the religious ideology of the day. Let me explain to you what that means. That means that as a Sadducee, he did not believe in demons. He did not believe in angels. 
He did not believe in miracle powers. He didn't believe in the miraculous power of God. He didn't believe in the hope and the resurrection of the dead. He only read the Torah. He rejected the prophets and he rejected the Psalms. He's liberal in his theology. He's liberal in his political viewpoints. He supports the Hellenization of Israel. What does that mean? When Rome occupied a conquered region, they would what's called Hellenize the area. They would bring in Grecian culture. So they would erect a theater. They would erect a gymnasium. They wanted to try to change the life and the lifestyle of the conquered people to adapt to Roman Grecian culture. And, and Caiaphas is promoting that in Israel. So to give you a brief summary today, real quickly, we have a dark and gloomy, sensual, perverted Roman emperor. We have Pontius Pilate, who is a heavy-handed, taxing Roman governor over Judea. We have three sons of Herod. By lineage alone, they descend from a despised, violent leader, and they themselves have shown irrationality and sensuality in leading the region. The temple leadership is liberal, it's illegitimate, it's in corroboration with Rome, and it doesn't believe in the fullness of the Scripture. They give their audiences neither hope in this present age or in the one to come. And to add to the misery, the people of the land, many are groaning under the Roman occupation. While others, so there's division. Some are groaning, wanting to see Rome driven out. Others have accepted the Hellenization of their culture and of their history. And they're participating in the Roman baths and the gymnasiums and the theater. Because their mindset is if you can't beat them, then you might as well join them. It's a volatile time. And to add to all of this, a prophetic voice has not been heard in either temple or synagogue in perhaps almost 400 years. It's a dark time at that time in the history of what we call the nation of Israel. And it's in that setting that we find the next part of our text. We're going to go to Luke's gospel, chapter number 3. We're going to begin with two verses and then four verses in a few moments. In Luke chapter number 3, to reiterate what I have just spoken to you and given you some historical background, it says, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate is governor of Judea, and Herod is the tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip is the tetrarch of Iturea and of the region of Trachonitis, and Licinius is the tetrarch of Abilene. Annas and Caiaphas are the high priests. But this last phrase of chapter number two shows you at the darkest moment in human history, there is a God in heaven who has not forgotten the promises that he made to his people. And at this time, God said, I've got both appointed and elected leaders I've got those that have usurped governments, those that have been trained in all of the political schools of the world. I've got religious leaders that have been trained in Judaism and in the ideology of the Sadducees. But God said, I'm going to overlook those religious leaders and I'm going to overlook those political leaders because i got a man hidden out in the wilderness that the Bible says that the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And upon that, 
hinges the life and the lifestyle and the communion of faith that you and I now possess because a man had the courage to receive the Word of God and walk in the anointing of God. It's a powerful moment in Scripture. John's conception was miraculous. You remember the Bible narrative in Luke's gospel says that his aged father, Zacharias, and his aged mother were unable to produce a child, but Zacharias was burning incense in the holy place as his lot was when an angel of God startled him out of the darkness and promised him and said, your prayer is heard, Zacharias. What prayer is heard? He's an old man. He hadn't been praying for children, but 30 years earlier, he and his wife, Elizabeth, when their womb, her womb was unable to produce a child, God heard their petition. Let me tell you, the God that hears your petition is not the God to forget your petition. And in the right time, at the right moment, at the right hour, God shows up ready to say, now is the time. And Zechariah was startled, and you would be too. When the angel called to you or called to him out of the darkness and said, your wife Elizabeth is going to bear a son. And he's going to be the forerunner of the coming Messiah. He's going to be hidden in the wilderness till the days of his showing unto Israel. You know, Zechariah stumbled a little bit in unbelief and God muted his tongue. But the scripture says that somehow or another they were still able to, to light the candle and they were able to come together and a child was produced in the womb of Elizabeth. And I love that scripture because the Bible tells us that Elizabeth's child John was filled with the Holy Ghost from his mother's womb. And I love that passage in scripture when Mary has found out about the birth of, of, of John or about the conception of John and she comes from the hill country and she goes and meets with Elizabeth and the scripture says that when Elizabeth heard the salutation of Mary the babe why was that because Mary now has the holy child Jesus on the inside of her and when she spoke her words carried a measure of the anointing that was on the inside of her and when she spoke that anointing spoke to Elizabeth and it awakened John in his amniotic fluid and he began to wrestle and rise up because he was looking for the day in which the anointing of God would come upon him and Elizabeth begins to prophesy and Mary begins to prophesy and when John is born Zacharias begins to prophesy because God is doing something in the earth. It's a powerful moment that God hears the petition and the pleas of his children. He's not forgotten. God has a word. Somebody say God has a word. Jesus said this about John. He said he's more than a prophet. He's not clothed in soft raiment. He wasn't wearing skinny jeans. Come on. Not even salmon colored ones. I heard about that. <laughs> Listen, he wasn't wearing an ecclesiastical coat either. Is that right? Rather, he was clothed in a clothing that was made from camel's hair. He was separate from the temple and separate from the synagogue, but he wasn't separate from the call of God. He wasn't separated from the presence of God, and he was not separated from the prophetic word that had been spoken over him many years earlier. He emerges in the wilderness with what you and I can call the word of God. What does that mean? If you do any studies in the Greek, you'll know that there are two Greek words translated word in the New Testament. 
One is a logos, and it means kind of to a degree the word in general. But there's the word rhema, and it means more of a specific word. And in this particular passage, it's rhema. The rhema of God came to John, the son of Zacharias. That meant that God had something to say. Did y'all hear what I said? That meant that God had something to say. God came down on Mount Sinai and he spoke a word in the midst of darkness. But until and after that time, God chose a prophet to speak through. God had a word. John was his prophet and he was ready to bring a word to the people of that generation. John refused both synagogue and temple. He chose his pulpit on the banks of the Jordan River. John's message resounded to the common parishioner, the soldier, the harlot, and the adulterer. But it was despised by the religious leaders and the government leaders of his day. Let's look just briefly at a brief excerpt into one of his messages. It's in the seventh verse of the third chapter. John begins to preach when he arrives on the scene with the word of God in his spirit. And this he said to the multitude that came forth to be baptized of him. Does everyone have a latte today? We are so glad that you're here. Today, I'm not going to preach. Uh, rather, we're going to show our sermon by virtue of the screen for you today because I want everybody to be comfortable in the setting today. And if latte's not good enough, we've got some servers who will come to you and bring you, perhaps, matter of fact, we will have a menu while you're here today so that we want you to be comfortable because you can't worship God if you're uncomfortable. No, that's not the message that John preached. Uh, John came and listened to what he called the people that were coming out this doesn't get you elected in today's generation. Look what John said. He said to the multitude that came out to be baptized of him, old generation, old generation of, because you're either in one camp or the other. You're either a child of God, born of the Spirit of God, or you're a child of the devil. And John said to this multitude, this generation, you're a generation of vipers, who hath warned you? No religious leader, no governmental leader has warned you to flee from the wrath to come. One thing I like about John's message, John expected, he expected life change immediately. Not this progression, well, you're going to slowly just get, no. At least you come up out of the waters of baptism, John would look you in the eye and say, God expects you to live differently. You're no longer of this world. You're sold out to God. You can't live like the world. You can't look like the world. You can't act like the world because you're not of the world. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God both in body, mind, and spirit. John expected a life change. He said, bring forth fruit that's worthy of the repentance that you supposedly just uttered upon your baptism. Isn't that powerful? Notice this. The thing that catches my attention about John he did not alter or water down his message for anybody that came to hear him preach. He was not moved by the political pressure of the day nor the religious pressure of the day. He would have been called a religious bigot and intolerant in our day. People would have been picketing his messages. Are you hearing what I'm saying today? In this context today, political leaders and religious leaders. He was unafraid and unashamed to reprove them. Let me give you just the culmination of John's life. You know that John baptized Jesus in the River Jordan. We know that. 
John's ministry began to diminish as Jesus' ministry began to increase, thus fulfilling the intention of God. He was the forerunner before Christ. But he was reproved by Herod and Herodias because John had reproved Herod for marrying his brother's wife. He took his brother's wife and married her. And John said, it's not right. Did y'all hear that? He said, it's not right for you to have her. And the end result was he was locked up in prison as a result of his stance on holiness and the word of God. Ultimately, it cost him his life. The executioner's axe fell on the back of the neck of John the Baptist. But I have to believe that prior to that axe piercing through his flesh, his voice could still be heard echoing down the, hor- the, the corridors of Herod's palace. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. So in an age of oppression, confusion, political perversion, and ecclesiastical liberalism and false doctrine, the word of God comes to John, the son of Zacharias in the wilderness. Now let me say this to you today. When I think about modern day, present day ministry, and I'm going to start, I'm just going to use myself as an example for no reason other than I know myself better than anyone else. I am neither a prophet nor evangelist, just a simple pastor in a rural town in what you and I call the hill country of north central Arkansas. But like John, there's one thing I want above all else. I want the anointing of God upon my life. I want the words that I speak to have, a, have an anointing upon my life. And so that when you hear these words, they pierce into your heart, your mind, and your consciousness. I'm tired of churches where I occasionally get to observe, hear, watch, uh, either through television or through attendance, and to, to sit and to hear a message where there's no piercing element to the Word of God. The Word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword. It doesn't always pacify. Sometimes it comes and it cuts right to the core of our very being. And we cannot be the generation that picks and chooses. We have to listen with an attentive ear to what God says to the church. But like John, I want the anointing and I want the power of the Holy Spirit. And I too desire to have the Word of God. I say this as I, but it's also we. You and I, we must have a distinction in our message. We cannot pacify the itching ears of our generation. The reality is this. Men and women flock to churches that fail to preach the fullness of the gospel. Men and women uh, flock to churches that fail to address the issue of sin and the need for repentance. Well, I'll just preach it anyhow. They run from churches that preach what we call the political gospel. Because they say, well, I get enough of that on television, so I don't want to go to church and hear you talk. Let me tell you. Let me say this today. They've got to have coffee, cookies, and donuts. they got to have a 20-minute speech with no emphasis on holy living and repentance. And if you say anything that can be deemed as, as, as convicting, they will divert it as condemning, and then they will reject it entirely. Let's go a little bit farther. I want to say this. I don't condemn anybody. We condemn ourselves when we don't respond to the call of conviction with a changed life before God. That's what we do when we reject the Word of God. So I ask you today, just very quickly, who has the Word? 
who had, John had the word in his generation? Is it the wicked liberal politicians? Is it the educated elite and the liberal ecclesiastical leaders of our generation? It might just be hill country folk like you and I. That maybe we haven't been trained in the seminaries of our generation. But maybe we got enough sense to pillow our head on the bosom of Jesus. And say, I just want to hear what the heartbeat of my Savior is. Because if I can hear that heartbeat, then I'll have a word to speak to those who are weary. I want to say this today. There's madness in the land. There is madness and I know as I listen to the messages that were preached by these godly men that preached in my absence, and none of them wanted to venture into where I'm going to venture today. But that's because I'm the pastor. I'm going to. Truth has fallen in the streets. As in the book of Ephesians, people are walking according to the course of this world. Let me tell this today. Listen, people are under a spiritual delusion. They are under a spiritual deception. They will look at something that to be true and honest and say it's a lie and in error. Or they will look at something that's a lie and in error and they will call it truth. You say, Pastor, how is that? Because of the power of deception. The very same demonic power that deceived Eve in a garden called Eden and moved her to take a fruit that God had cursed because the enemy had deceived her that it would make her uh, uh, like God. Men and women are in the power of deception today. Come on now, let's just be honest. I'm going to preach it whether y'all want to hear it or not. I suppose you do or you wouldn't be here today. So here we go. Let me go ahead and jump off into this for just a minute. Pastor Brown, are you going to address the Kavanaugh situation? You know what? I think I will just a moment of time. I'm just going to go ahead just real quickly. I want to say this. Whether guilty or innocent of something that happened 36 years ago, I'm not the judge nor the jury because he wasn't on trial. Let me say that real quickly. I don't know. I don't know. But here's what I know. I know that that whole thing that played out had nothing to do with somebody that potentially was sexually abused 36 years ago. You and I know that, and they know that, and, and the, even a part of the world knows that. You and I know what it was all about. It was about the potential of affecting this thing that's called abortion. Now, you and I know that today, so I'm going to talk. And if you got the courage to come back next week, I'm challenging. If you got the courage, I'm going to exploit it in a way that I've never done previously. I'm going to go on a, to a level that I've never gone previously. Now, as I do so, I always, under the sound of my voice, may be somebody that made a decision years ago. And I'm not in any wise trying to condemn anyone. There's grace and forgiveness for anyone and everyone that will come to God. Is that right? But at the same time, I want to say this. Again, it's about, listen, it's not about a person's healing and recovery or justice for any actual abuse. It was about abortion because why? Because it's possible, and I say that very respectfully, that maybe at some time in the future there could be a tilting of the Supreme Court and an adjustment of Roe versus Wade. That's a faint possibility, but it is possible. And so you know what's agitated? The demon god of bloodthirstiness called abortion is agitated 
Because anytime God gets ready to do something in the land, the demon spirits begin to be agitated. And people that are mild and meek and are pretty nice people, all of a sudden they get be outside themselves and they start doing and acting all crazy and looking at things that are one way and calling them another. Why? Because deception is in the land. Because a spirit has come over the minds and the hearts of men and women. A demon God. Let me tell you, subtitle to the message. Title was the word of God. Subtitle, it's a devil. It's a devil at work. Now you and I, our battle's not with flesh and blood. Right? We recognize that today. Now it's hard at times not to get angry in the natural. Come on somebody. It's hard, but listen, the moment we get pulled out into the flesh, then we will fail miserably. But the weapons of our warfare, they are not carnal, but they are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, the casting down of imaginations. Come on, somebody. And bringing every thought into obedience to Christ. And I want to say this to you today in this house. I believe that there are many supposed Christians which are indifferent and are concerned about their own economic situation. Here's my challenge to all of you. Many of you will watch these things on television hour after hour after hour, but you won't get alone 15 minutes before God and pray in fervency and in faith and bind that bloodthirsty spirit in the name of Jesus. And so I want to challenge you today. Listen, why don't you have the courage to come out to the prayer meeting tonight? We're going to have communion. We'll put an American flag right here, and we'll pray in the name of Jesus that this bloodthirsty demon will be cast down in Jesus' name. That's what we can do. That's part of our That's not all we can do. There's more that we can do, and we'll talk about that next week. But at the same time, we can start in prayer because there's a warfare that needs to happen in the spirit. Listen, you can pick it, and you can go and oppose uh, those that have opposing voices. And if you do that in the natural, you're going to be defeated. If you don't bind that devil in the spirit, if you don't fight your warfare by the power of the blood of Jesus and the authority of the Word of God, you will be defenseless before your enemies. And so I'm going to trust that God's going to awaken a new generation of men and women that say, you know what, God, I'm ready to see you do something monumental in our country to the glory of God. Now listen, I want to say this to you before I close. Let me tell you, next week is going to be the most difficult message I've ever preached in my 30 plus years of preaching the gospel and my 23 years of preaching and pastoring in the, in the assemblies of God. Next week is going to be the most challenging, the most graphic, the most intentional message that I've ever preached. And I want to ask you to have the courage to come out. To have the courage to come out. Because many times... We overlook things because we're not confronted with the stark reality of what they are. And that's what I'm going to show you next week by the Word of God, by history, and by virtue of the screens that are behind me. John's message in closing. Nor Jesus' message produced and united the nation. Can I say that? John's message, nor Jesus' message united the nation. Actually, it drove the division deeper. It did. And let me tell you, church family, what was spelled out in that passage of Scripture in the book of Ephesians is that there are either children of disobedience 
who are under the control of demonic spirits, and there are the children of light whose responsibility is to shine the light into the darkness. And we do so in humility and in love because, as Paul reminds us, he said, we had our lifestyle just like theirs, just like theirs. But God, who is rich in mercy, raised us up in His Son, Jesus Christ. And I'm telling you, some of the very people who look one way now, act one way, and think one way because of deception can do a 180 by the power of God. Did you know the lady, I can't recall her name, but the lady who brought the initial court case in Texas in 1973 representing Roe, it was her desire to abort her baby, has since been genuinely born again and is as staunch of a pro-lifer as there is and grieves that she was a part of that landmark decision, God can flip the thing upside down. Come on, he can. The man that wrote those words in Ephesians, the second chapter, was a bloodthirsty religious zealot who left Jerusalem with letters in his hands fresh from watching Christians being taken to prison for their faith, even watching the, the apostle slash deacon Stephen stoned at his feet. He was a bloodthirsty religious zealot till he was confronted by the glory and the power of a risen Savior. Church family, dare we not water down our gospel for anyone. Dare we not water it down. May we preach Christ glorified in power, glory, preeminence. May we preach him as the soon coming king. Come on, somebody. May we preach him as the eternal judge that all men everywhere will stand before God one day and give account of their sins to God. That, my friends, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The hour in which we live necessitates a convicting word on the consciousness of men. God is rich in mercy, but there is coming a day of wrath. Now, I'm going to ask Aaron to join me on the platform today, and we're going to close this message out. And it's been my privilege to preach to you. I've been looking forward to coming back and having a privileged opportunity to share the word of God. And I want to pray that today, I don't know you, I don't know all of you, there could be somebody, anytime I bring up sensitive subjects, let me tell you this from my personality, I want to always be very careful, and I always want to present things in a balanced mode, because Paul brought balance, even in that passage when he said, they're under a spirit, they're walking according to the course of the world, they're in blindness and they're in darkness, and then he said, by the way, so were we, is that right, so are we. But what's the difference? The difference is the gospel. The difference is a humbled heart receiving what Jesus Christ did on the cross on your behalf and yielding yourself to him. God forbid that we bring you into these buildings and we invite you to come in and we don't preach the gospel to you. 
I can't just give you seven steps to a better life. That's not what God's called me to be. I can't put a croissant or a donut in your hand and hope that entices you to come to church. Here's the way I feel. You can have breakfast before you come to church. That's the way I feel. You ain't got to sip coffee while you hear me preach. I hope that you, get, you can't bring it in here because conviction would be so great in this sanctuary you'd squeeze the cup. That's what I pray for. That's why I'm not letting you have any coffee in here, by the way. But I say that, I say that to say, if we're not careful, the enemy is going to mute the one people group that's got the answer. That's his objective all along. Notice this. The word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias in the wilderness. God had a word. Other people had political endorsement and ecclesiastical endorsement, but they didn't have the word. Did you hear that today? Listen, you better be careful who you're listening to. You better know the word of God, and you need a conviction that when the Spirit speaks to you, you can discern and say, that's the word of God. Let that be the deciding voice in your spirit. Our heads are bowed, our eyes closed. I know it's right for me now.